Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Kia ora koutou. Welcome to Extra Time, RNZ Sports Weekly Online Podcast. Call Richard Wayne Tene. Coming up, the end is nigh for the ANZ Netball Championship... And there's an unbeaten New Zealand team on top with a local derby finals game this weekend. We talked to steel coach Nolene Taurua and her Australian opposite at the Magic. What's wrong with the men's golfers? They're seemingly more afraid of the Zika virus than the women and they vastly outnumbered their LPGA colleagues in pulling out of the Rio Olympics. We investigate as well as get the thoughts of the last local male golfer to seal his place and why Ryan Fox wants to get to Rio more than any of the big PGA Tour stars. If I do happen to go to Rio and say I'm an Olympian and you know, adds a cool part of a legacy to our family history as well. Later on we hear about the Stauschover sports place at Te Papa, or rather why Peter Snell's memorabilia should really be going south to the smaller Sports Hall of Fame instead. And Kiwi tennis pioneer Anthony Wilding. He won Wimbledon four times. So why isn't he more well-known? The last ever ANZ Netball Championship final series hits the halfway stage on Sunday when surprise minor premiers, the Southern Steel, host the Waikato Bay of Plenty Magic in Invercargill. It's the New Zealand Conference final. At stake, a chance to host one of the semi-finals, while the loser has to cross the Tasman to play the Australian Conference champions in the other semi. The Steel went unbeaten through the regular season, and coach Nolene Taurua told our Joe Porter that her southern side's consistency gives her plenty of confidence heading into the game. We've been really consistent um, performance throughout the whole competition, and for us to be, I suppose, top of the New Zealand conference, that's a positive. You know, we're, we're as prepared as we can be. Um, and really looking forward to having the opportunity of playing in front of our home crowd. I think we just got to get out there and live the moment and irrelevant of what actually happens on the scoreboard, um, just be really proud about the performances we put out there and you know, not getting caught up in too much of the pressures that comes with this part of the um, competition. And that consistency of performance throughout the year, though, must really give you guys a confidence boost, knowing that if you do what you have been doing, you should win this game. Oh yeah, you know we and we know that, and you know we we've done a lot in regards to our mental prep, but there's still that, I suppose there's that uncertainty on the side that still chips away in your head, you know, and this is the first time that these girls have been in this type of situation, I suppose, um, and it's forever talking to them and forever working through these little things, you know, these little people on the shoulder and. You know, I'm so proud about where we are and, you know, we need to keep remembering about how we got to the situation and, and what it presents as a positive aspect to not only us but also the region. So, you know, we, we can only do what we can do and we've prepped as much as we can considering the situation. But, um, you know, we've got a couple of days to go before we actually enter the game and, and I know we'll start to shift um, to a positive frame once we step through that door. So it's all on. Um, and very excited about, as I say, the opportunity that presents to us. 
What is the difference from going from round-robin style of play to finals netball? There must be a palpable difference, and I guess in a way that both teams approach the game and also in how you respond to those pressures. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, everyone says that it's just the same, it's just another game, um, you know, and, and that's usually the, I suppose, the psychological aspect you take into this. But, you know, it's not another game. And, and we're, we're very lucky that we're guaranteed two games to go, you know, and irrelevant whether we stay in New Zealand or, or we go overseas for the next um, round. But we know we're guaranteed two, two games, which is four trainings in hand. But um, it's two things that I think are really important. One is the mental aspect of it, taking ourselves away from the actual scoreboard and looking at um, the performance that we want to put out there and reconnecting that to our values that we set ourselves, which is about being you know, the pride of the South and the head, heart and humble, which is what we represent. Um, and I think, you know, the values of heart at the end, it's always the team that wants it more, you know, and if you go in there being hesitant or, or afraid, which is actually, you know, uh, mentally you can actually go into that or into this next game being afraid to let the ball go or execute, then you usually come out second best. So, you know, mentality is a big thing, plus also heart. And as I say, it's a new experience for these girls, you know, really really taking it to a positive aspect and, you know, taking the scoreboard out of it and hoping we can just get, get out there and play. Joe Porter speaking with SEAL coach Nolene Taurua. For their part, the Magic came through a tough encounter against the Northern Mystics in the elimination final in Hamilton. And that came after a dismal start to their ANZ season, which saw the Magic winless in their first five games. The Magic trounced the Mystics 63-47 in that niggly clash, Defenders on both sides were given warnings by the umpires and the players got frustrated with their opponents' tactics and the umpiring decisions. Magic coach Julie Fitzgerald was happy they kept their concentration for the full 60 minutes. She spoke to RNZ's Stephen Hewson. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. We were very happy to come away with that game and I think even more happy that we played well for 60 minutes. That form, is that, do you think, the best you've been so far this season, that, that match? Across a whole match, definitely. That match was a very physical one. Would you expect the same level of maybe niggle that happened this weekend? No, to be honest, I don't. Still play a totally different style of netball. That's not our style of netball to play either, so I don't think you'll see that in this week's game. Did you feel you maybe got dragged into that, that style of play a little? No, I was actually very impressed with the composure of our team. I feel they did an excellent job in not getting dragged into it. The, the week off that the Steel have had, how, do you, how much of a factor do you think that, that might be? Oh, Nolene Giroux is a very smart coach and she will have ensured that their week replicated what it would have had they played a normal game and I'm sure that they'll be, they won't suffer any ill effects for having had it. Now the, the Steel are obviously unbeaten this, this season. How do you go about ending, ending that streak? Uh, we have to play the complete game. We can't afford to make errors and we have to be very, very diligent in our defence all the way down the court. An effort like last weekend, would that be, be enough? No, I think we'd need to step up to play a team like Steel. They're on a high. They have great confidence. They're playing in front of a, a really strong home crowd. I think we'd need to step up if we'd get away with this one. Definitely our intensity in defence. There'll be no room for any laps at all defensively down the court. And ball is so difficult to win off Steel. We have to make sure that we convert every turnover. 
Well, I suppose Julio might be more relieved to have got this far, I suppose, given the way that the season did start. Oh, definitely. If you'd asked me seven or eight weeks ago if I thought we'd be here, I would have had doubts. But now that we are here, we're very excited and we certainly intend to make the best of the opportunity. So the Steel face the Magic 4pm Sunday in Invercargill. The Steel have beaten the Magic in both their regular season encounters. This is Extra Time. I'm Richard Wayne. Still to come, a disagreement between Big Te Papa and the tiny New Zealand Sports Hall of Fame in Dunedin. Who should hold the best sports memorabilia? And why is Te Papa only now showing an interest in sport? Plus the Canterbury tennis player who won Wimbledon four times, but hasn't earned the recognition he should have. Golf is once again an Olympic sport after an absence of more than a century, but its return might be short-lived given the reluctance of the top male players to compete in Rio. There'll be no Jason Day, no Jordan Spieth, Rory McIlroy, nor Dustin Johnson, the world's top four at the upcoming Games. They begin in less than a month's time. Ron Sirac is a senior writer at Golf Digest, and he spoke to Morning Report's Guyon Espiner about why the male golfers don't seem to care about the Olympics. The number right now is we've got a total of about 15 men who have been qualified to go there aren't going to go. Um, uh, they've been using Zika virus as, I think, sort of an excuse. I think it's a wide range of issues. Uh, uh, Brazil's not the same country now it was in 2009 when it was awarded the games. The government's in collapse. The economy's in collapse. Uh, there are serious bi- environmental issues, and there's a, a, a lot of crime issues. And I, I think all those things are factoring into these decisions. So why are the women going and the men aren't? Because I think the women, the women look, they, they play for about one-fifth the prize money that the men play, and they get about one-fifth the media attention that the men, that the men get. And um, uh, I, I think that the women are, uh, let's put it this way, the men are more financially in a position where they can afford not to go, where I think the women really want the opportunity to be on the biggest stage in all of sports. And, and the other thing to keep in mind here, unlike say, swimming and track and field and gymnastics. In those sports, an Olympic gold medal is the biggest thing you can get. That's not true in golf. If you ask these men golfers, would you rather have a master's green jacket or a gold medal, or would you rather have the British claret jug or the gold medal, they would take the major championships in golf. Interesting, isn't it, that you're saying that the, the, the women are also trying to, to, to grow the game, I guess. I mean, Rory McIlroy, he was very explicit about this. He said, I didn't get into golf to try and grow the game. I got into golf to win championships and, and major championships. So they're not even really pretending, are they, that it's about anything other than the prestige and the money that they get. They don't need that, um, and they don't get that from the Olympics, so they're not going to go. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's getting, Rory's getting beaten up on social media pretty good for, for what he said. And, uh, you know, one of the other things to remember, and, and I, I'm sure this plays into their decision-making, golfers all have very, very lucrative endorsement deals. They wear logos on their bodies to, to, that they are paid millions of dollars for for companies. They can't do that in the Olympics. They're going to go there, and they're going to essentially wear the team uniform. And all those other logos that they're being paid to wear aren't going to be on their bodies. So there's really nothing for their sponsors to gain from them being there either. Is this a case of use it or lose it, though? I mean, if they don't turn up for this one, I think they're booked in, are they, for the... It's the Tokyo Games next, isn't it? They're booked in for that one. But then, you know, if they're showing no interest, then surely that it'll be um, wiped off for another 122 years or however long it was since golf last appeared at the Olympics. 
Yeah, they're locked in for 2020, and next year the International Olympic Committee will vote on whether to keep golf beyond 2020. And uh, it is going to get the attention of um, of the IOC if golf doesn't produce the big names. And and look how much not just how much Brazil's changed since 20 uh, since 2009, but how much golf's changed in 2009. Tiger Woods was a factor. Phil Mickelson was a factor. Michelle Wee was a factor in the women's game. And all those big names uh, aren't on the stage anymore. And, uh, and the games, the Olympic Committee will definitely look around and say, hmm, gee, we can't get your big stars. We're not sure we want you. But what I'm hearing, what the IOC loves about golf is the quality of the advertiser it's attracted to the game. Mm-hmm. They bring in with them some top-tier advertisers. And the IOC likes money. That's Golf Digest senior writer Ron Serac talking to Guyon Espiner on Morning Report. Well, the two New Zealand men's golfers competing for the second and final spot on the Olympics team didn't need to be convinced to go to Rio. Ryan Fox claimed the provisional place alongside the already confirmed Danny Lee following a strong finish on the European Tour's second tier. Fox finished just two places ahead of fellow Aucklander Michael Hendry to clinch the final place at the Games. Though it was a nervy wait for Fox... He and Hendry had been in a month-long battle to qualify. The ability to cope with pressure clearly runs in the veins, though. Fox is the son, of course, of 1987 Rugby World Cup winner and current All Blacks selector, Grant Fox. The 29-year-old spoke to our Matt Chatterton about what a tight race it was to the finish line with Hendry. You know, I guess six weeks ago, I wasn't playing very well, and, you know, I guess Mike was probably far enough behind at that point that, you know, it wasn't too much of a worry, but... You know, to see him playing so well and then, uh, you know, just having force in my hand a little bit and uh, to drop back down to challenge tour as well on, on top of things and to to have, I guess, three three good weeks in a row on the challenge tour and three top tens and, you know, Mike to have, I think it was five five top sevens and, and five events up in Japan. It was pretty good to see both of us play some, some good golf, uh, you know, under pressure and, uh, you know, I think we both... You know, pushed each other a little bit, and obviously, I'm I'm really happy I came out on top. But you know, he he certainly would have deserved that spot if, if he had been been ahead of me. Yeah, indeed. I guess now looking forward, if you do represent or get named in the uh, team next week, you'll be the third generation to represent New Zealand at a sport. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty cool one. So I'm I'm hoping the the Olympic Committee. Uh, ratify my selection and yeah obviously you know everyone knows history with with my dad and you know I, a lot of people don't know my mum's dad uh, Merv Wallace represented New Zealand in cricket in the 30s 40s and 50s and actually coached New Zealand as well in, in cricket so you know pretty cool if I do happen to go to Rio and you know say I'm an Olympian and you know adds a cool part of a legacy to our family history as well. Is that something that, I guess, when you were younger, you ever strived for, was to become an Olympian or just represent your country in any given sport? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess not really not really an Olympian as such. I mean, the, I grew up playing rugby and cricket and you know, golf came in a little later, but in all three of those sports, really, the Olympics is, is not, in, not in your view at all. But definitely, I always wanted to be a sportsman and, you know, I always wanted to... Especially, you know, growing up playing team sports, cricket and rugby, you you know, the pinnacle is representing your country, and I always wanted to do that. And you know, I've been lucky enough in golf to be able to do it at Eisenhower level as an amateur, and 
you know, now hopefully being able to do it for golf as well and, um, you know, being able to throw an Olympian in, into the mix would be very, very special. And, um, yeah, just got a, got a nervy little wait over the next few days to, to find out if, if I'm selected or not. But I'm certainly hoping for it. Given what's happened over the past month in particular with the likes of Rory, Jordan Spieth, Jason Day and Dustin all pulling out, does the Zika virus concern you at all? And if you did make it, did you consider it all pulling out yourself? Um, look, there's definitely a concern there. I think there's also a concern around security. You know, I, I completely understand the reasons why, why those guys pulled out. You know, but uh, it's something that, it's too hard to turn down. I mean, even though golf doesn't really have a history with it, it's still, the Olympics are still the pinnacle sporting event worldwide. And, you know, just to have a chance to go, I, you know, I certainly wasn't going to, going to turn it down. You know, for the big boys, it, it's a bit different with having, you know, the four majors and the WGCs, the FedEx Cup, the Ryder Cup coming up, you know, the, they've got a really big schedule. And, you know, maybe it was an easy decision to, for them with the Zika and the, and some of the other issues around Rio that, you know, the Olympics maybe took a back seat in that regard. But, you know, hopefully going forward, that doesn't, the golf stays in the Olympics and, you know, the guys get involved in, in the next one in Japan. I know it's still semi-early days in your professional career, but at this stage, where does, you know, possibly becoming an Olympian rank in your in your professional golfing career? Um, it'd probably rank... Ranked two for me behind playing in the Open last year. I mean that was that was pretty pretty special to be able to play the Open at the at the home of golf in St Andrews. But you know, I, I guess the Olympics really wasn't on the radar as a golfer up until what, four or five years ago, or, or on the radar for me until probably the middle of last year. So it's a bit of a surprise, but certainly will will definitely be if I get to go something I'll remember for the rest of my life, and, and you know something I'll I look forward to finally if I can if I can get there. Ryan Fox speaking with Matt Chatterton there. The final golf selections for New Zealand are announced on Monday. This is extra time. Sports historians say Te Papa shouldn't be entrusted with New Zealand's sporting treasures, and the smaller New Zealand Hall of Fame should be bolstered instead. Sir Peter Snell said this week he would offer his medals to Te Papa in Wellington, but first he wants an assurance that the museum will display them. Te Papa says negotiations are still to begin, so it can't yet commit to a public display, while the Sports Hall of Fame guarantees the gear would be available for all to see. As Kate Newton reports, not everybody thinks Te Papa is the place for Snell's Olympic memorabilia. Te Papa receives more than $50 million each year, with about 1.5 million people passing through its doors. The Sports Hall of Fame, located in Dunedin's historic railway station, is a much more understated affair. With no consistent government funding, an income of about $200,000, and an annual visit account of 15000 but the Hall of Fame's chief executive, Ron Polensky, says that's 15,000 more pairs of eyes than will see Sir Peter's medals if Te Papa doesn't display them. Polensky says Te Papa's ill-fated purchase of Sir Peter's running singlet at auction was the first time the National Museum has shown any interest in New Zealand's sporting history. We have had discussions with Te Papa on several occasions about there being a sport element to Te Papa, and the, re- the response generally has been 
uh, ranging from negative to disinterest. Mr Polensky says the most recent discussion happened in April and he's got no reason to believe De Papa has since changed its mind. The sports historian Jamie Bell, who also directs the New Zealand Cricket Museum in Wellington, says the discussion about Sir Peter Snell's memorabilia raises questions about how Te Papa includes sport in New Zealand's social history. They don't necessarily have a reputation as uh, an institution that embraces that aspect of sporting culture and I don't think there's a great deal of sporting uh, artefacts in their collection so it's nice to see them challenged on that. Mr Bell says the Sports Hall of Fame already has an astonishing collection of artefacts and he'd like to see it better supported and promoted with dedicated funding from the Ministry of Arts, Culture and Heritage. At the moment there's a big push for a film museum in Wellington and it's all but signed off and and that's separating out a part of our culture that's become quite big in, in recent years and making it stand alone and I think that's the importance of somewhere like the Sports Hall of Fame is that it is an aspect of our culture that can stand alone and probably shouldn't be uh, drawn into you know, just being a corner of the National Museum. The Hall of Fame's major funder is Sports New Zealand. Its chief executive, Peter Miskimmon, says his organisation is discussing with the Hall of Fame how its collections can best be shared in the future. Is it by expanding further? Is it by regionalising and sending some of that stuff up and down the country? Is it, is it merging with uh, Te Papa or some other museum, or is it in partnership? Mr Miskimmon says it's too early to say whether that could end in a request for dedicated government funding. But however it happens, he says sport has an important place in New Zealand's social history that shouldn't go unrecognised. And thanks to Kate Newton for that report. Finally, for extra time. He was born in New Zealand in Christchurch and won Wimbledon four times. So why isn't he more well known? Tennis player Anthony Wilding was born in 1883. He went on to win 11 Grand Slams, including four straight Wimbledon crowns. He was world number one and the first and so far only player from New Zealand to have won a Grand Slam singles title. Wilding was killed in action in France in 1915 in World War One while fighting for the British Army. His great-niece, Anna Wilding, is a White House correspondent, and she's been researching his story. Wilding says because her great-uncle was from the colonies, the British haven't given him the recognition he deserves. Anna Wilding spoke to RNZ Afternoon's Jesse Mulligan about Anthony Wilding. For me, he was a very special kind of character. I, I, I was able to read at a really young age for some reason. I was one of these kids that picked up books and could read at like the age of two or three. And by five, I had started attacking my father's uh, extensive library and found the book um, Captain Anthony Wilding by A. Wallace Myers. And I read the whole book, and I was, I was in tears at the end of it that this incredible man had lost his life. And, of course, it inspired me to pick up a piece of wood and go and head it against the garage shed, literally, <laughs> find an old tennis ball. And that's what got me into tournaments, and that is my first. I mean, I discovered him by myself in my way in a way, just because his book was, was in my father's, father's um, shelf. So um, the family was aware of all his achievements. It's not like something we discussed. And I became the tennis player of the family, and I was so emotionally moved at such a young age by his story that I sort of carried on, you know, doing a lot of research and uh, holding him very close. And the wild and tennis genes ran strong in you? Apparently, yeah. I mean, I I won a national doubles title with Belinda Cordwell, wow. a Kiwi player. 
um, at one point, at like the age of 15 or 14, I was on the national circuit flying around the country by myself by the age of 13 and 14. There must have been some old-timers who, who uh, remembered your father or, or knew his exploits well. They must have been very excited to see another wilding out on centre court. Yeah, the, the headlines were like wilding keeps the flag flying and embarrassing <laughs> things like that, which was so embarrassing when I went to school. But, um, you know, I, I also met these wonderful Kiwi legends who, you know, perhaps didn't do as great as Anthony, but they were still great players. Onnie Perrin, um, we billeted Chris Lewis and Kelly Evenden, you know. Um, wow. So I really got a, a taste of future generations of tennis. And right. Anthony, your great uncle, apparently he didn't just excel at tennis, he was a bit of an all-rounder. Yeah, he was the first man to take a motorbike through Europe solo. I mean, how how incredible is that? There's mm. a movie there, right there, in that <laughs> story. And he used to box. He used to go on the boxing circuit. Even when he visited New Zealand, he would train with the boxers of the day. And there's this wonderful story of him training with his boxer down in Timaru as well. Um, and he'd run, his, run this bike shop, motorbike shop, around New Zealand, <laughs> mm. you know, in Christchurch and things like that. So he was an all-rounder. And then to lose his life so tragically in the war was... It's a horrible thing. Um, tell you what, they wouldn't let those tennis pretty boys near a boxing ring these days for training, would they? No, I, I, you know, I don't think they would. Boxing's not considered like what you train for tennis these days. It's it's the gym, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Aside from the sporting prowess, what do you know about him as a person, personality-wise, physically? Look, I mean, there was a wonderful obituary of him in the New York Times from 1915. I'm talking about the world lost one of its greatest sportsmen. Um, and, you know, it also said he was a boy to the very end. You know, he was a man physically, but he was a boy to the very end. From everything I've read and seen, he was absolutely a striking, stunning, strong, physical man who was utterly boyish and charming as well. Um, he was engaged to a Hollywood silent screen star, Maxine Elliott. I dug up some wonderful information. Um, I have done extensive research, I have to say, um, more than you know, many academics or anyone. And I found this wonderful um, uh, information that he had actually secretly married Maxine Elliott in New York. Amazing. And uh, went to Paris with her. And it was known in Paris that they'd got married, but not London or New Zealand. Did she survive for long? Yes, she did. But I don't actually know what happened to her. I really, I mean, I, I've looked at her story and I, you can't find much more about her after Anthony. I think it obviously hit her very, very hard. They were living together in London. So I think that, you know, must have had quite an impact on her. I know she did a couple more movies, but we didn't really hear much about her after that. Mm. When you talk about his life, it sounds a bit like something out of The Great Gatsby. I mean, how did you find all this out about him, the fact that he was you know, really the, the toast of the town. It's happened in an unusual way in the sense that as I became um, known in the States and London for my work and Australia, people started contacting me. And um, the, the two very separate industries, the film and, and, and the sports industries, but some people bought the turn to put the two and two together from the sports industries. And I would start getting emails from people who have old letters of his Wow. You know, in England, or have old photographs or old paintings. Um, there's a huge um, group of people, of course, who are military war aficionados, and he was a great, great hero in the war to many people. So I've had wonderful contact um, from overseas and, and America with people who have information or old letters from him. And this is basically 
as I became learn more, I became more and more intrigued, and I started doing my own research. I ended up living in New York for my own work. That led me to the International Hall of Tennis fame, who inducted him that we didn't even know about. Um, that led to more findings. Then I contacted Forest Hills in New York, and I went and visited with them and visited the old stadium where he had played. So just one thing for me has led on to another. It's, it's become almost symbiotic. It's just it happened very naturally. Anna Wilding speaking to Jesse Mulligan. And that's extra time for this week. Remember, you can always get the latest sports news on our website as well as on RNZ National. Call Richard Wayne Tene. Thanks for listening. Kakiteano. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.